Welcome to Podcasting Stories, insights and interviews from people just like you, using podcasts to grow their business and share their message. Podcasting Stories is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Welcome to the Podcasting Stories podcast. My name is David Spray, and today we're talking with David Roselle of Roselle Wealth Management in Bend, Oregon. In this episode, we learn more about the firm and David's unique approach to wealth management in which he focuses his practice on current or near retirees. We also talked about two great books that David has written to guide people on their journey to financial independence. And we also talked about his podcast and how that ties in with his books to amplify his firm's message. If you've ever considered having your own podcast or writing a book, this episode has a lot of great ideas on ways a podcast or a book might be beneficial and lessons that David has learned from having a podcast. So with that, let's get to the show. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Dave. It's really a pleasure to be here. Oh, it is my pleasure. So where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from beautiful Bend, Oregon. We have some fresh snow on the mountains. We hit frost last night, but we're going to be near 80 degrees today. So this time of year is certainly my favorite here in, in Oregon. That is awesome. I've never been to Bend, but I, I know people who live there and I hear great things about it. It's been on my, my short list for a while. So that's, that's great. Yeah, I know you and your wife are bikers, so we'd love to uh, take you out on our mountain bike trails one of these days. That'd be great. We would, we would love to do that. So let's kind of go back in time here. Are you a native of Bend? I am not. I moved out here uh, 21 years ago uh, from another beautiful town near Lake Placid, New York, where we had the Winter Olympics in 1980. I remember that. The Miracle on Ice. I was 12 years old at the time. And when the world came down upon our town of 5,000 people, it really made a big impact on my life. Yeah. In what way? Well, at that point, I was uh, a young teenager, hadn't really traveled much outside of New York State, nonetheless, internationally. And having people from you know, 80, 90 countries visit and, and seeing the world really opened my eyes. And since then, have had an opportunity to travel to 75 countries around the world on six continents. So my eyes were wide open at the time. That is, that is awesome. So... You own a wealth management firm, and how did you get into the wealth management arena, and how long ago was that? Wow. Well, looking back, in many ways, I got involved in the wealth management business at the age of 19 in a roundabout sort of way. I started my first company at the age of 15 and sold it at the age of 30. And oh, what wow. We did, we took a yeah, we took a product from recycled car tires and we applied it onto asphalt driveways. It's called driveway seal coating. And uh, I did this as a summer job in the in, during high school and then through college. And we kept uh, expanding and getting larger and went from doing eight driveways to 25 driveways. And when I sold the company, we were doing 1,200 driveways a summer. And uh, the story goes is that my grandmother... Um, she lived through the Great Depression. 
she took my grandfather's average income and invested it into the stock market and enabled them to live a, a, a pretty nice lifestyle when they were in retirement. And uh, there's two things that uh, young teenagers have on their minds, and, and automobiles tend to be one of them. Sure. And I remember getting approval at our local bank to buy a brand new Honda Prelude. And this car was a beauty in its day. You probably remember it. Was it red? That was a popular it color. Was, it, it was black on black. It had a sunroof. It had these uh, nice. buttons inside where you, you press the buttons and the windows actually go down automatically. <laughs> that blew my mind. Instead of a little <laughs> crank knob. Exactly. It, it had FM radio and a cassette player inside. And, and a sunroof uh, you know, and power windows. And what sunroof. more did you need? What more did you need? Nothing. Nothing. And I'll never forget the conversation that my grandmother had with me because grandparents have a way of communicating with teenagers in a different way than maybe your parents do. Because at that age, your parents sure. can't say anything right. I'm, I'm living through that right now with with some teenagers. And, and she said, David, this is a beautiful car. She was looking at the brochure and she said, it's going to be nicer than all your friends' cars. And I'm so proud of you. And she said, but I want to show you this chart. And it was a chart showing a 19-year-old funding $2,000 into an IRA. She taught me what an IRA was. Mm-hmm. And 2000 was the limit at that time. And, and this 19-year-old funds it until they're 27 and never puts another dollar into the account. And she showed me that at that time, the stock market had averaged 10% since the beginning of the stock market mm-hmm. and how the power of compound interest takes over. And you'd have over a million dollars by the time you were of retirement age. And the chart to the right showed someone still starting very young, but started at age 27. I love this uh, chart. Instead of 19. And they go yeah, all the way till 65 and it's either the same or less money, right? Yeah, it's about 20% less money and they funded it so much more. And and I'll never forget when she said, David, I don't know what your goals are, but if you ever want to be independent of the paycheck, you really don't need to do anything extraordinary. You just need to do some ordinary things, but do them extraordinarily well. Mm. And, uh, and that forever changed my life. And I never did buy that new car. Oh, that's a great story. That's really an amazing story because it seems like everybody I know of who lived through the Great Depression I had a rational aversion to the stock market. So that really says something about your grandmother that her takeaway was not the stock market's a big ripoff and keep your money in under a mattress. Why do you think that was that she learned a lesson that it seemed like very few depression livers learned? Yeah, my grandma Ruth was a one of a kind. Her Her photo hangs in my conference room right now, and she continues to play a a major role in my life, even though she's no longer with us. She was one of those people that not only attended college at a time where it was rare for women to attend college, but graduated number one in her class. Oh, wow. Thought differently. Yeah. And so she was self-taught about the stock market. She would study companies while her husband was, was at work. And she just started investing on her own back then through stockbrokers, mm-hmm. which was the only way. And uh, and she was living proof. You may have heard of the book, The Millionaire Next Door. I have by Tom Stanley. I'm a fan of all of his work. 
Yeah, he he. This book is about twenty five years old now. But what it showed was that the typical millionaire in our country isn't the flamboyant person that has a large house up on the hill with a garage mm-hmm. full of European automobiles. It's the person that owned their small business. It's the person that bought used Buicks instead of brand new Mercedes mm-hmm. and lived below their means. And they're quietly the millionaire next door. And it wasn't until grandma passed away that we all realized that Graham Ruth was actually the millionaire next door. Mm-hmm. That is one of my all-time favorite books because I've gotten so many personal takeaways from that book. And one of them was the two ways to accumulate wealth that they found in the book. The two most popular was have a job that pays a high hourly rate and don't spend all your money, like a surgeon, a top uh, litigating attorney. And then the other was to own a business and be kind of frugal. You know, so the one extreme, you've got the neurosurgeon and the other extreme, you have one of the most common occupations for millionaires, auctioneers. I don't know if you remember that from the book, but in two totally different approaches, right? And they would live differently. And so my wife and I as business owners, I've come to the point of, I try to blend the two because they said like the way the neuro, the smart way for a neurosurgeon if his washing machine breaks, is to walk into Lowe's and buy the most expensive one. No research, just walk in and do it. And the way for the auctioneer to do it, whose time is less valuable, is to spend a lot of time researching and making a really sound kind of financial choice. And they both work, it just depends. And so I find that in our lives, I have to blend those two approaches. Yeah, blending is a great way about it and not taking anything to an extreme. And I agree with you. In my next life, I'm either going to be an auctioneer, I'm going to own a a garbage company or a dry cleaner. Yeah. Have you ever heard this book uh, or this podcast called Sweaty Startups? There's There's a guy who started a moving business when he was in college for these college kids on I think he went to Brown University at the end of the academic year, they'd have like their stuff that they couldn't really fly home very easily. And so they needed a place to store it for the summer. So he had this business and then it grew into self-storage, really a fascinating guy and really impressive. He's maybe 28 years old and he manages a hundreds of millions of dollar portfolio of self-storage units. He's really impressive. But he has a, he a podcast called The Sweaty Startup, and he each episode, he and his partner focus on one or two businesses and the business opportunity there. And like the last one was they were looking at pest control, home inspections, and pool care. And his assert, assertion is those sweaty startups, that there is a shortage of all of those businesses And all you have to do to be really successful is just to answer the phone and return phone calls, basically, because the competition's so bad and so unprofessional. And and he really, he basically makes a case that instead of a kid going to college, that they're far better off, you know, either entering one of the trades with the idea of owning their own plumbing business at one point or whatever. And so anyway, so I digress. 
That sounds like an interesting podcast. You know, speaking of sweaty startups uh, and the area that you're going down is it reminds me when I did have my driveway ceiling business in my youth, which was certainly a sweaty startup. It was not a clean business. Is my goal even at a young age was to turn a blue collar business into as much of a white collar business as possible. So I emulated my dad a lot. My dad was a successful dentist, and I remember him. Uh, sending handwritten thank you cards to clients back in the day. And if they had a, a, a surgical procedure, he would actually pick up the phone in the evening and call them just to find out how they're feeling. So what I started doing is every time we finished seal coating a driveway, I would send a handwritten thank you card with our logo on it, just thanking them for their business. And then a few days later, follow up with a phone call saying, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, this is David Roselle calling just to find out if there's if you're pleased with the way your driveway turned out. And it was amazing of doing those ordinary things extraordinarily well. It really made us uh, stand out. We even had this written guarantee that if there was a drop of sealer, this black gookie material, anywhere but on the driveway, the driveway was free. And that included their garage doors, the sidewalk, the lawn, or even the street. So we just took a very simple business and took it very seriously, had fun with it simultaneously, and succeeded past our wildest dreams. That is a is an awesome story. And so you saw that firsthand, right? Because like you could probably go start a driveway ceiling business tomorrow if you wanted to, and it would you could it would probably be a uh, financially successful in short order, wouldn't it? Yeah, speaking of that, I'll share with you a, a quick story. Is one of my closest friends, Jeff, he built himself a beautiful home. He said to me, you know, who's the best driveway sealer in town? Do you know the companies around here? Next thing I knew it, I was going to Home Depot <laughs> helping him pick out these five-gallon drums. And uh, it was my first driveway that I sealed in decades. And I didn't forget a thing and had a blast doing it. And so, it, so the good news for him, and I guess the good news for you was the driveway was going to be free either way, right? Whether you got some black gunk on the grass or not, right? Because I'm guessing <laughs> you weren't correct. charging him. That is correct. That's awesome. Well, let's get into, uh, so my question that got us off on this tangent was what got you into the financial services business or wealth management? And you'd mentioned your grandmother and then that she was a millionaire next door and you had your own business. So when did you kind of formally enter the business or when did you become, you know, officially a wealth manager? Yeah. So I sold the company and it gave me enough money for a very solid down payment and then some on purchasing my first home out here in Bend, Oregon and was uh, recently married, had uh, a child on the way, and thought, what is the next business that I can become passionate about? And at that time, a lot of friends and family members would come to me asking me for financial advice because I'd set up a pension plan for the company, and I just enjoyed this stuff and, and would start mm -hmm. reading up on it. And I said, you know what? I should start up a company helping people with financial advice because it seems like everyone I know needs good advice. And it was a daunting task at the time because no centers of influence in a brand new town that was growing quickly. I'm not one to call cold call people and ask them if I could talk about the most personal subject known to man, their sure. finances or how much money they make. 
but I started it slowly. We're just celebrating our, our 20th year here now in Bend. And uh, the company's evolved, certainly, our focus over the years. So how has the focus evolved? Well, when you start out, specifically in this business, we were all things to all people. Uh, mm -hmm. If you could fog a mirror and you had $50, we'd invest that $50 for you. Sure. <clears throat> and, uh, and over the years, we started a niche that we basically because we really enjoyed it. And there's so much to financial planning these days and so much to the different types of investments that we don't, I don't believe you can be an expert in all the fields. And we wanted to be an expert in a niche. And so we decided that a lot of financial planners are really good, really competent at helping people accumulate wealth. Mm -hmm. But when you transition into your years of financial independence and now need to spend down that money over the rest of your life, there isn't a whole lot of expertise out there with that focus. And so all of our clients are successful people who have accumulated wealth, who are at or near retirement. And our focus is to help them get down to the payout phase and really live the life they've always imagined in their retirement years. That's awesome. And I can echo that because I was in the financial services business a couple decades ago for a few years. And it's so true. All the wealth advisors I know, they're so focused on their assets under management that in a way, when a client retires, it's a bad thing for them, right? Because their assets may start diminishing. So it's almost like the approach is, don't worry about retirement. Just let's just, you know, build as many assets now as we can. We'll worry about retirement when we get there. And then when they get there, because of their conflict of interest, they're like, okay, whatever you do, never, ever spend any principal, i.e. the assets under management I'm being paid on. And so you can only withdraw, you know, a super conservative, you know, 2%, 3%. And because you just like, that's how you have to do it. And if that doesn't give you enough money, keep working and keep accumulating more assets. So I can appreciate what you're saying. You're exactly right, Dave. Compensation breeds behavior. So a lot of financial planners don't focus on the second half of the financial journey. Yep. I would uh, agree. And in all fairness, if somebody gets them to retirement, they've really done a great job. The challenge is just, and if they really got him there and they said, hey, we've gotten you here. Now let me introduce you to David Roselle because he'll take you the rest of the way on your journey. If they did that, that would be great. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's like they just kind of, yeah, they're kind of on their own on the journey after retirement, it seems like. Correct. So, so it's that retiree. So does that mean most of your clients currently are retired? They or are. Or is it a Mitch? Uh, they're either a few years away from retirement or they're smack dab in, the in retirement or have been retired for years and still have a lot of concerns. They don't have true peace of mind. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, years ago, I had an opportunity to meet a gentleman named Ed Veesters. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ed. I have not. Ed is has to be the best mountaineer that has ever walked the planet Earth. Uh, matter of fact, he summited Mount Everest 
seven times successfully and did so without supplemental oxygen. Wow. And he's one of the few human beings to summit all 14 8,000 meter peaks, but the only one I believe to do so without supplemental oxygen as well. And one day I remember him saying to me, he says, you know, most people think our goal when we're setting off to climb these world's largest peaks is to get to the top. And he says, that wouldn't be the goal of any successful mountaineer in the entire world. And I said, what do you mean, Ed? He said, well, what they don't realize is that 80% of the accidents, 80% of the deaths happen on the descent. You're Mm -hmm. facing fatigue, lack of sunlight, hunger, and it's just harder on the body descending than it is climbing. Yep. And he said, it's the second half of our journey that by far takes on the most amount of risks and needs the most amount of planning. And that was an epiphany. That was an aha moment for me that really shifted uh, my professional career because I immediately realized that as clients are climbing their financial mountain and they're accumulating funds and funding their IRAs and 401ks, they get to the top, hopefully, of if they're getting some good planning and funding appropriately, the top of their financial mountain. But what I realized over the years that it's the second half of their financial journey when they're no longer funding these accounts, and now they need to live off of them for the next 20, 30, and sometimes 40 years, that it's this second half of their financial journey that also takes by far on the most amount of risk and needs the most amount of planning. And it has the least margin of error, right? I mean, if you screw up and you're 40, you have time to to correct it, right? By continuing to earn more money. And uh, yeah, he sounds like my kind of mountain climber. My wife and I climbed either Mount Princeton or Mount Yale in Colorado about eight summers ago. And it was one of the first 14ers we did. And we were 60 feet from the summit. And the trail went around, we'd been on one side of the mountain and right near the top, it traversed the mountain and we were on the opposite side. We went around the corner and we discovered there was like a 50 or 60 mile an hour wind blowing. And we got there and my wife started to go up and I just said, nope, not today. And she's like, what? We're like, I mean, you could see it. I mean, it was 60 vertical feet from the top. It was probably you know, a few hundred feet walking. And I just said, I said, you know, I mean, it's just, it's not safe. Yeah, you could literally get blown off the mountain. So we reluctantly descended it. And right then I said to her on the way down, I said, do you know who my favorite mountain climbers are? And she said, no, who? And I said, 70 year old mountain climbers. <laughs> because it means they have done stuff like they stopped 60 feet from the summit because they, you know, took extra planning on the way down. And I can confirm every injury I've ever had hiking mountains, we don't really climb them, we hike them, is on the descents. So I can relate. Well, you'd be a a big fan of Ed Veaster's because in his amazing book called No Shortcuts to the Top, he talks about how he was on Everest the day that Krakauer wrote his book. Oh, wow. In the early 90s. Right. When so many mountaineers lost their lives. And he talks about always trust the gut, follow your intuition, which was one of the biggest lessons I took from his book. And on that day, he was getting closer to the summit. 
and his gut spoke to him. And even though the forecast was for clear skies, his gut told him otherwise. And he turned around and went against the grain as people are saying, what are you doing, Ed? He says, I just need to turn around. And if he hadn't have done that, he probably would have lost his life on the mountain like so many people did that day. I'm looking at the book on Amazon right now. I'm going to get the Kindle copy as soon as we hang up. Well, that's awesome. Okay, so we've talked. You got into this business 21 years ago or 20 years ago. You moved to Bend 21 years ago, started the business 20 years ago. You have a niche focused on the retirees or near retirees. You um, Have you ever thought about doing anything to kind of amplify your message, like maybe writing a book or starting a podcast by chance? Yeah, actually all the above. You know, they say everyone has a book inside of them. And I truly believe it now. When I had that driveway ceiling business, one of the beautiful things about it was that Mother Nature forced us to shut down operations in the wintertime because it had to be at least 55 degrees for this um, mm-hmm. sealer to adhere to the asphalt. And so I took this as an opportunity uh, to travel the world. And I focused on third world countries. And I would travel solo with my backpack, my one-man tent, and just let serendipity take over. And so I kept journals. And after doing this for 10 years and spending a month in 65 different countries at that time, over the the six-month hiatus, I filled up 10 journals with a lot of detailed travel stories. And uh, a number of years ago, I realized that there's a lot of financial books out there but there are so many that they're just, they offer a lot of education, but they might be arduous to get through because most people don't want to read books on financial planning or investing. Right, right. And my goal was I'm going to write the first financial planning book that's actually fun to read. And so how I accomplished this is I'd start off each chapter with one of my more riveting travel stories, whether it was being in Berlin the day the wall came down in 1989, or doing a 21-day self-guided trek in the Himalayas, and so on, or hitchhiking from Nairobi, Kenya, down to Cape Town, South Africa over six months. And I'd start each chapter with one of these stories that would then lead into a financial lesson of one of the major eight risks that we face when we're in the payout phase of retirement. And the book, having never written a book before, um, it surpassed my wildest dreams. I, I really wrote this for my clients and their friends, and it went on to get endorsed by uh, many of the major uh, news sources around the country and endorsed by icons in the world of business, investing, sports, and motivation, including Ed Vester's, which was a true honor. Yeah, so I should for the listeners, I should I should come clean. So you were kind enough to send me a copy of of your first book and I've read most of it and I love this the the way you started each chapter with a story. So that's great. And then and I'm trying to remember what was the name of the first book? It's called Failure is Not an Option, Creating Certainty in the Uncertainty of Retirement. Yep. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. So I would highly recommend the book for anyone listening. 
it's really just, it's a fascinating read. Just your stories are great. And, and the info is great too. And I can see why you wrote that because it seems like it fits right in with your retiree target market. But then you wrote a second book that seems like it's not really geared toward your target market called Keep Climbing. So why did you write a book that wasn't seemingly for your target market? Yeah, what I found is uh, the years following the writing of Failure is Not an Option, a lot of readers, my clients, would approach me and say, David, we enjoyed your first book so much. We learned a lot. We had fun learning, but we need a book like that for our children and for our grandchildren so they can learn these basic lessons on how to accumulate funds and all the things that you like to talk about. And so I thought, you know, there are, there's very few resources out there for the younger generation. There's a few good books out there that I thoroughly enjoyed when I was growing up. One of them is called The Wealthy Barber by David Chilton. And that got my attention. But besides that, there weren't a lot of resources out there. So I decided to use the same formula as the first book, take starting out with riveting travel stories that lead into financial lessons. But this would be specifically for the millennials out there. And so uh, I titled okay. it... Yeah, keep climbing a millennial's guide to financial planning. Awesome. That yeah, cuz I would imagine that your retiree clients try as they might, they probably uh don't end up spending all their money, right? So I'm guessing that some portion of their wealth ends up uh being passed to to their children and grandchildren, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, what we found, it wasn't the reason for writing that book, but our clients are getting uh, this second book in the hands of their children and grandchildren. And, you know, and as our clients age and every year, some of them pass on, we're finding that those who are inheriting the money who have read the book really get a sense of who we are uh, in our spirit. And we're retaining those assets. Um, because they feel comfortable continuing to work with us. That's awesome. Tell me about one of the most gratifying emails or letters or phone calls you've ever received from a client. Hmm. I would say the most gratifying email I've ever received was an email, interestingly enough, that I received two weeks ago from a, a client. I've read it several times. I've printed it up. And I said to the rest of our team, this is exactly why we do what we do. And uh, she lost her husband about five years ago to ALS. Which is oh, wow. The worst ways to lose your life. Sure. He was a very successful real estate developer who had accumulated a, a small fortune and wasn't very knowledgeable in the stock market. And as he knew uh, his time was limited, he had the wherewithal uh, to interview a bunch of financial planners. We were thankful that they both chose our company. And he said, you know, as much as I don't know the stock market and investing and I, real estate is my game, I'm liquidating everything I own right now so that it's more liquid and will be easier for my wife 
to to handle this money. And we met with her for our annual review. And we recently set up a, a donor advised fund and philanthropy for her and, and her family because give, giving and gifting was very important to them. And we met with her and she wrote us an email just saying you could feel the tears of joy coming through because everything, all this money stuff was overwhelming for her, like it is for most people. Sure. A very intelligent person. And she just shared that uh, she shared her appreciation, her gratitude for the work we do, the peace of mind that she has, that she doesn't even look at her statements anymore, uh, that the trust is there. And we care a whole lot about her and, and she cares a lot about us. And, it, and she's truly a part of our, our family at work. What a great story. And you notice the way I asked the question, I didn't ask if you've had any gratifying experiences from clients. I, I, cause I knew you had, I just wanted to talk about one of them. So, okay. Well, as we're moving right through the, my interview agenda, let's talk about your podcast. What prompted That is the name of this podcast after all podcasting stories. So what's the name of your podcast? How long ago did you start it and what made you want to start it? Yeah. The name of the podcast is Recession Proof Your Retirement. And so the focus is really on people at or near retirement. There's a lot of podcasts that are wonderful out there, again, on the accumulation of funds and how to get wealthy. And this one is really for people who have already accumulated wealth. They have a lot of financial concerns still. We know how much money we have, but we don't really have a clear idea of what that money can or can't do for us for the rest of our lives. And maybe the investments that helped us accumulate this wealth may or may not be the most appropriate investments for the distribution of this wealth. Mm-hmm. And so it really, it follows along nicely with the books. I bring in some travel stories very often, tie them into financial lessons, and have started uh, similar to your podcast where I'm interviewing just a lot of interesting people around the country on different subject matters uh, that could be beneficial for people who are at or near retirement. That's awesome. What do you wish you knew? What do you know now that you wish you knew when you'd started your podcast? Wow. Probably how much work goes into it to really have an end result that you're proud of. So one of the things that I did is rather we started out with doing two podcasts per month every other week and realizing how much effort went into that. And I was starting to associate more stress to the podcast than more passion and joy. And so over this uh, last six months, we made the decision to let's do one podcast a month, make it the best podcast we can rather than two. So it's quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. So if you had known on the front end, you would have started with just one podcast a month. Is that right? That's correct. I think if podcasts you, are such a great way to learn. I mean, I know that you listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I mean, years ago, we used to spend bucket loads of money purchasing 
these tapes from Tony Robbins and Earl Nightingale, right, right, Jim Rohn, and they really helped shape my life and the life of millions of other people. And now we have access to endless education and we can listen to it at no cost while we're exercising, while we're in the car, as we're just hanging out. And it's really uh, changed the way that we all learn. While you're sealing your driveway, you could listen to it, all kinds of ways to, to consume it. Absolutely. So if, so that's great. If you could do it all over again, would you still uh, do a podcast knowing what you know now? I would. My mm-hmm. next podcast recording is this afternoon. And, and, and now that I've you know, failed my way to success with it and I'm figuring it out as we go along, I'm really enjoying it. And if you follow your bliss, I think we'll be successful no matter what we do. I completely agree. What's one thing that you really enjoy about having a podcast that you maybe didn't anticipate when you started it? You know, one aha moment for me was last week, I was visiting an orthopedic surgeon just facing a back issue from a bike accident. (coughs) And the doctor who's well regarded in our community, who I'd never met before, but heard of, came in, shook my hand and said, I love your podcast. And I was honored. Wow. And he was sharing stories that I shared in the podcast and shared you know, some of the benefits that it provided him. And that is something that I never take for granted. It really hit home and made me realize that all the effort that goes into this pays off if it's even benefiting one person like himself. So that was a, a joyful experience for me. That's awesome. Yeah, I tell people that having a podcast is like having a superpower. I just, I keep discovering new benefits to having a podcast and it's just really a great platform. Well, as we're wrapping up here, now comes the trick question that I think I learned from Tim Ferriss. So if you could go back in time and give advice to your 25-year-old self, what advice might you give to yourself? Oh, maybe work a four-hour work week like Tim Ferriss. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love his podcast. He's one talented host. He is. Uh, That's a a great question. I would say it's not what you look at that matters. It's it's what you see. And, And what I mean by that is, Life is really 10% what happens to us, but it's really 90% how we react to it. And Mm -hmm. I think it's putting life in perspective because life has its stresses for all of us, even those of us who work so hard at managing stress. And it's having the wherewithal to wait until the next morning to send that really important email. Or when you look at the stock market going up and down every day, like a yo-yo, is not to follow the emotions of that, but realize that when the markets drop, which they do one out of every four years, that there's never been a down market that hasn't rebound ever to hit an all-time high. And there's a quote out there that really just hits home is, 
you could look at a field of dandelions as a thousand weeds or a thousand wishes. And I say, let's look at it as a thousand wishes. I really like that. And I wrote down the advice you would give yourself because I think it's advice for any age. It's not what you look at. It's what you see. That's, that's awesome. Well, this has really been fun. If people want to reach out to you, how can they do so? Do you accept LinkedIn requests? Is there a phone number or email you'd like to give out? Sure. Everyone has a different way of communicating. We are on LinkedIn. Our, my email address is david at rosellwealthmanagement.com. That's R-O-S-E-L-L. We're at davidrosell.com where you can learn about the books, read the first chapters. And uh, if anyone wants to speak to me directly, they can reach me at 541-390-3832. That is great. David, this has been a really enjoyable time. I don't remember the last interview I did that I enjoyed more than our time together today. And I could have talked to you for another hour, but I know you have uh, a schedule to keep and interviews to do yourself. So thank you so much for taking time to be on and for, for really candidly and vulnerably sharing your story. Well, Dave, thanks so very much. I look forward to continuing the conversation in person here in Bend, Oregon, or down in Houston. And you, you really ask a lot of intriguing questions, which I appreciate. The pleasure is all mine. Well, hey, you have a great day, and I hope your your next podcast that you are the interviewer, you do as good a job as you did as a guest. Well, thank you so very much. Have a, a great day. You do the same. And there we have it, another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at www.podcastingstories.com. This podcast is brought to you by your podcast team. If you have ever considered having your own podcast, head over to www.yourpodcast.team to learn more about how they can help you. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.